Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 243, The Russo-Turkish Wars, Part 1. Last time, we covered the life of Maxim Gorky, finishing up our discussion of some of the great Russian and Soviet writers of the 20th century and late 19th. Today, we go in a different direction where we begin a two-part series on the 12 wars fought between Russia and the Ottoman Empire from 1568 until 1918. These wars marked the gradual decline of the Turks and showcased the rise of Russia as a great power. Some of the wars fought between these two empires had a substantial effect on their histories, while others had only a minimal impact. The Russo-Turkish wars would shape their combined histories in ways that no other wars they would engage in would. I will lead towards emphasizing the Russian side, but will not shortchange the goings-on concerning the Ottomans. To understand why the Russians and the Turks engaged in the most extended set of wars in European history, you have to look at their geographical relationship. Both countries, early on in their hostilities, were expanding. Moreover, Russia had just come out of the shadow of the Mongol invasion, with many of its remnants still threatening them. Between 1500 and 1800, the Ottoman Empire had grown to approximately 1 million square miles. While immense in its own right, it was dwarfed by the size of the Russian Empire, which maxed out at 14 million square miles. It is the border conflicts between these two eastern behemoths that we will be discussing today. The Ottomans had finally conquered the last of the Roman Empire, also known as the Byzantine Empire, when they captured Constantinople in 1453. However, they were threatening Europe with hopes of spreading Islam westward. This religious factor bound the Turks with the Khanates of Kazan, Astrahan, and Crimea. The siege of Kazan would be the focal point of the first Russo-Turkish War of 1568-1570. Previous to this first clash, the Turks, along with the remnants of the Mongol invasion, had raided the lands to the north, mainly in what is now Ukraine, for centuries. Their primary goal was the acquisition of slaves. The vast southern border between Russia and the Khanates was impossible to defend, so Ivan IV decided to pick off his enemies one at a time, with the closest, Kazan, as his first target. Ivan and his predecessors had a hard time protecting their subjects from the constant raids from the south. Moreover, the slave trade was a lucrative economic driver for the Ottomans, so they encouraged their Tatar allies to expand their intrusions. In 1551, Russia tried its first attack against Kazan, but that caused a counterattack by the Crimean Tatars with the help of the Ottomans, and with the target being the capital of the Tsardom of Russia, Moscow. This was actually a nexus moment for Russia, as they came very close to losing the war in their country. The Turkish Janissaries, who aided the Crimean Tatars, were mainly former Christians kidnapped as children and sold to the Sultan to serve as soldiers of the Jihad. 
Many of them would have come from the Russian steppe. It is estimated that during the 16th and 17th centuries, over 2 million enslaved people were captured from Muscovy, Poland, and Lithuania. Still, before we forget, slavery was not just practiced by the Turks. The Russians had their own slave trade. They called their slaves serfs. One of the slave trade's most important centers was the Astrakhan Fortress. In 1554, Ivan IV set out to conquer the city, succeeding after a long siege and battle. Ivan claimed the title of Tsar of Astrakhan in 1556. This shook the powers that be in Constantinople, especially the Sultan, Selim II, and the Grand Vizier, Sokolo Mehmet. Sending 20,000 Turkish soldiers, along with between 30 and 50,000 Crimean Tatars, we have the beginning of the first Russo-Turkish Wars, starting in 1568. Now, some historians don't count this as an actual Russo-Turkish conflict, but I feel it really set the stage for all future battles. The enormous force began their siege of the Astrakhan Fortress the following year. While the siege was going on, the Ottomans enlisted a large number of enslaved people from Moldavia and Wallachia, which is modern-day Romania, to dig a 450-kilometer canal between the Volga River and the Don, which would give them a way to ship troops quickly, threatening not only Russia, but Persia and Central Asia. This canal would be a significant undertaking today, so it is not surprising that it failed. The governor of Astrahan, Pyotr Serabriani, set out a bunch of troops to harass the besieging army of the Turks. This delay allowed the relief force to arrive from Moscow. The Russian military won a resounding victory, routing the Ottomans led by Kasim Pasha and Khan Devlet, the first Gerai of the Crimean Tatars. Subsequently, the Ottoman navy was destroyed in a storm, leaving the remaining soldiers trapped. Most died from raids by the locals or froze to death during the winter. The Ottomans could always muster up new troops from within their empire, but rebuilding a navy, well, that was a whole different ballgame. Because of this, they hastily signed the Treaty of Constantinople in 1570. However, this would turn out to be just a ruse as Khan Devlet I Gurey planned a massive invasion of Russia with the capital, Moscow, as his target. Gathering up 120,000 men, 80,000 Tatars, and 40,000 Ottoman troops, Gurey invaded Russia in May 1571. They deftly bypassed the many fortresses on the way to the capital. Moscow had only 6,000 troops available, as the rest of the army was engaged in fighting against the Swedes and the Polish-Lithuanian Confederation. It was a disaster in the making. On their way to Moscow, cities along the invasion path were burned to the ground, the able-bodied captured and sent into slavery, and the elderly and infirm massacred. When the Turks arrived on May 24, 1571, they laid waste to the countryside surrounding Moscow and lit the city itself on fire. At the time, Moscow had already suffered through many fires, as the town was predominantly made of wood. 
This fire, though, was the worst to devastate Russia since the Mongol invasion of 1240. It is estimated that over 200,000 Muscovites died, with 150,000 Russians captured and sold into slavery. So horrific was the loss of life in the city that Tsar Ivan IV had to forcibly move people from other regions of Russia to repopulate the capital. The Ottomans, though, and the Crimean Tatars believed that they had so weakened the Russians that they could demand the return not only of Astrakhan, but Kazan as well. Ivan refused to accept the offer and instead decided to reinforce the capital and prepare for another invasion. In July 1752, an army half the size of the previous one began its march toward Moscow. However, the Ottomans could not send any more troops as they had suffered a humiliating defeat at the Battle of Lepanto. The Battle of Lepanto was a naval engagement between the forces of the Holy League and the Ottomans. It was a total disaster for the Turks, as they once again lost a large chunk of their navy and over 30,000 men. Still, the Turkish force that would come would outnumber the Muscovites by two to one. But, as anyone who follows medieval battles knows, the defenders are almost always better suited to combat than the aggressors. This invasion would be a prime example of this. When the Turks crossed the Oka River, 100 kilometers south of Moscow, they were forced to stretch out their lines because of the narrowness of the road to hell. This gave the commander of the Russian troops, Prince Mikhail Vorotinsky, a significant advantage, which, of course, he gladly took. Here, a strictly Russian defensive structure was built near the village of Molodzi, about 40 miles south of Moscow. It was known as the Gulyai Gorod, or Wandering Town. It was, quote, a complex of prefabricated wooden shields mounted on wheels with apertures to mount muskets. This defensive shield was designed explicitly for the Tatars. It would be a rousing success in the early stages of the battle. Wave after wave of Tatar men were slaughtered, trying to penetrate the Gulyai Gorod. When Giray saw this, he ordered a halt to the offensive maneuvers and decided on a siege of the fortress. Then, in what you have to call a brilliant plan, Prince Yuri Tokomokov sent a message from Moscow telling Tvorotensky that a massive relief army led by Tsar Ivan was on its way from Novgorod. It was a trick, as Tokmakov knew that the messenger would be captured and Garay told of the coming army. The Khan decided he could no longer wait for the siege to win him a day and ordered a full-on assault. On August 2nd, 1572, the Tatars attacked and were met with both artillery and a counter-assault by the Russians. Borotinsky also ordered an attack by cavalry on the enemy's rear, leading to a rout. Over 25,000 Ottomans and Tatars died that day, including the sons and grandsons of Gure. This would end 
the threat of the Mongol hordes remains to the Russian state's existence forever. While continued raids would be endured until the early 18th century, and two invasions of the suburbs of Moscow would occur in 1591 and 1592, there would be a further threat to the whole of Russia again, and that was pretty much over. The Battle of Molody, a very unknown battle, was one of the most significant ones in the long history of the many Russo-Turkish wars. With the wars with Poland-Lithuania, Sweden, and Denmark over, it was thought that the new target would be the Crimean Khanate. Unfortunately, Ivan IV would die in 1584, with his simple-minded son Fyodor taking the throne. When he died in 1594, the infamous Time of Troubles threatened the land of the Rus. This would have been a grand opening for the Ottomans, but they had their issues with the West, as did the Russians. The Turks were engaged in a series of wars with the Germans, Venice, Spanish Habsburgs, and Poland-Lithuania. The Ottomans faced problems on their western borders and had to deal with rebellions in the Balkans and an eastern threat from the Shiite Safavid Empire. The eastern threat would be ended in 1618 with the signing of the Treaty of Sarov. While this would have opened things up for another attack on Russia, for the first time, the Sultan, Osman II, would be murdered. Moreover, it would cause a weakness in the leadership for a number of years. The great expansion of the Ottoman Empire came to a halt around the mid-17th century. The Europeans had caught up militarily to the Turks, as they did not implement any improvements or reforms. The Russians, for their part, while not advanced in their changes to their armies as the Europeans, did make some significant jumps in their effectiveness as fighters. They would change from a boyar army to a professional one. They would utilize heavy cavalry, pikemen, dragoons, light cavalry with firearms, and the now infamous Streltsy. Unfortunately, within the Ottoman military ranks, there was a lot of infighting to keep the old ways. It would cost them dearly. The next great battlefield between the two sides would be over the control of Ukraine in the 17th century. This would have grave consequences for the history of Ukraine, as well as the current state of events that are unfolding on the Russian border. After the Russo-Polish War of 1654 to 1667, and the Polish-Ottoman War of 1672 to 1676, Ukraine was split in half. The left bank side, which when you look at a map is on the right side of Ukraine, they would ally themselves with Russia. And, and the left bank means the left of Russia. So while the right bank, which is on the left side, would side with the Ottomans. This split is being used by Putin as a wedge issue and potential for an invasion of Ukraine, which we saw occurred in February of 2022. This split in the Russo-Polish War would begin the growth of Russia from a regional power to a global power and set the stage for building an empire. This war was precipitated by the Klementinsky Rebellion of Zaporizhian Cossacks, 
which began in 1648. The local Cossacks were starting to chafe under the rule of the Poles and Lithuanians, primarily due to their Catholic leanings. As a result, they would reach out to the Tsar of Russia to aid them in their rebellion. The Russo-Polish War would signify the Poles' waning power and Russia's rise. This would greatly concern the Ottomans. The trigger was in 1651, when an assembled Zemsky Sabor voted to acknowledge the Cossacks as part of the Moscow sphere of influence and to enter the war against Poland-Lithuania. Tsar Fyodor III waited until 1653 to accept the decision and asked for a second positive acclamation, which he received. After the Cossacks ratified the agreement at the Pereyaslav Council, the Poles and the Lithuanians had no choice but to prepare for war. Also known as the Thirteen Years' War, it would begin in 1654 and go back and forth until it looked like the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth would win in 1660, when the Polish King John II Casimir ended the Second Northern War against Sweden with the Treaty of Olivia. He could now concentrate all his forces on the Russian-Ukrainian left bank front. However, Casimir's gains early on would vanish over the next seven years. He was forced to sign the Treaty of Andrusovo, giving Smolensk and the left bank to Russia. It would hearken to the era in Poland known as the Deluge. The Commonwealth would lose one-third of its population during this period. The Ottomans, on their part, were deeply concerned with the growing power of the Russians and the loss of the buffers of Poland and Lithuania. Ivan Samolowicz, the hetman of the left bank, would cross the Dnieper River with 30,000 men to take the fortress city of Shahirin and afterward Doroshenko. This incited a response from the Ottoman sultan Mehmed IV to send troops to retake the cities. In 1677, an army of 45,000 Crimean Tatars and Ottoman troops left for Shirhirin. However, it would be stopped short of its goals by smashing defeats of its military. Oh, but this did not stop Mehmed IV from trying again, this time with a far larger force of 120,000. Approximately 70,000 were Ottomans, with the remaining 50,000 being Crimean Tatars. Here, we first hear the name of one of the great defenders, Patrick Gordon, one of Peter the Great's soon-to-be best friends. With the odds significantly against the Russians, Gordon, along with Princes Rodondanovsky and Samoloyevich, knew there was no way to defend the fortress of Shishirin safely and effectively. So instead, they decided to rig the city with gunpowder magazines. When the Ottoman Empire, or army, entered, they exploded, killing thousands of their troops. The Russian forces made a beeline dash for Kiev, which they reached, forcing the two sides to sign another treaty known as the Peace of Bakshasare on January 3, 1681. It was to last for 20 years, laying a border of the Dnieper River as the boundary between the two states. 
It was to last 20 years, but would only last five. In 1682, Fyodor III died without having any children of his own. The crown went to two half-brothers, Ivan, who was 15, and Peter, who was 10. Sophia, their sister, would take the reign. She would smartly negotiate what was known as the Eternal Peace Treaty with Poland in 1686. This would free the Russians to take on their mortal enemies, the Khanate of Crimea, along with their allies, the Ottomans. After the Ottomans were routed at the Siege of Vienna on September 12, 1683, Russia began negotiations with the Holy League to become a member against the Turks. They would be welcomed in 1686, joining the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the Republic of Venice, and the Papal States. This was another brilliant move by Sophia on paper, but in reality, it would turn into a fiasco and would eventually lead Sophia and her partner, Prince Vasily Golitsyn, to fall from power in 1689. With large armies in tow, Golitsyn was unable to finish off the Crimean Tatars. The first battles were so badly planned that they would basically be viewed as a standstill. The second was far worse for the Russians, suffering severe losses of 35,000 men. While this war would essentially be deemed a tie, it would usher in a completely new era in the war between the two empires. This time, the Ottomans would meet their match with the new Tsar of Russia, Peter the Great. Under his reign, the Russian army and, more importantly, their navy would become one of the most powerful in the world, much to the chagrin of the Ottoman sultans. The next disastrous war was the one fought between 1710 and 1711 during the reign of Peter the Great. The Russians had just defeated the Swedish king, Charles XII, at the Battle of Poltava. Charles and a few of his men escaped the carnage and made their way into Ottoman Empire, specifically Bender, Moldavia. Peter demanded that the sultan expel Charles, which of course he refused. Seeing that the only way to finally end the Great Northern War, Peter decided to invade. This would be known as the Russo-Turkish War of 1710-11, to or the Pruth River Campaign. Having been turned down by Ottoman Sultan Ahmed III, Peter the Great took his army of 38,000 Russians with 5,000 Moldavians and marched into Ottoman territory on November 20, 1710. Moldavia's ruler, the Hospodar Dmitri Kantemir, and Tsar Peter signed the Treaty of Lutsk on April 13, 1711, to protect each other from enemies. What Peter and Kantemir did not know is that the Sultan had amassed an army of 200,000 to counter the invasion. The Battle of Staniletsi would cause Peter and his army to be surrounded by the Ottomans and their ally, the Crimean Tatars. Charles XII wanted the Turkish military to destroy the Russians, and Peter with him. He begged them. But the Tsar offered a peace treaty, along with a hefty bribe to Baltagi Mehmed Pasha. The Treaty of Pruth, signed on July 21, 1711, 
would be reconfirmed in 1713 through the Treaty of Adrianople. It stipulated the return of Azov to the Ottomans, Taganrog, and several Russian fortresses were to be demolished, and the Tsar pledged to stop interfering in the affairs of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Now, Peter had no choice but to sign, but the terms were so lenient as considered one of the great blunders in world history. There are many nexus points in history where something, had it happened differently, would have changed the trajectory of a country or an individual. For example, had Baltigai Mehmed Pasha decided to capture or kill Peter, and he had every opportunity to do so, Russia may never have become an imperial power. They would likely never have had any foothold in the Caucasus, and the Balkans would have remained an Ottoman holding for a lot longer. While the news of the victory was greeted with jubilation in Constantinople, he was dismissed when it was learned that Baltagi Mehmed Pasha had given up a complete victory at hand. Moreover, his enemies, which included the Crimean Tatar Khan and Charles XII, would rail against him in the court of the Sultan. As a result, Baltagi Mehmed Pasha died in exile in 1712. Around the time of Peter the Great's death in 1725, the Persian Empire began to make inroads into Ottoman territory. They had fought unsuccessfully against the Russians in 1722 to 1723, which gave up land in Anatolia, modern-day Armenia. By 1732, Empress Anne had negotiated a treaty with the Persians to bolster the threat against the Turks. This was affirmed again in 1735. This would lead to a Russo-Persian alliance against the Ottomans. In 1735, the Persians began to take territory away from the Ottomans, which angered Sultan Mahmud, but it did not trigger a declaration of war. What started things was the continued incursions of the Turks' ally, the Crimean Tatars, into the left bank of Ukraine. So, in the spring of 1735, Field Marshal Burkhard Christoph von München took a Russian army of 62,000 men into Crimea with the intent of conquering its long-term enemy. By this time, the Crimean Tatars were using the same fighting style they had since the Mongol invasion of 1240. They were light-mounted warriors who would turn out to be no match for the Russians' more modern army with muskets and artillery. The Crimeans raced back to their fortress at Perakop, a place that they were able to defend in 1689 when the Russians tried to take it. This time, the Crimeans were not so lucky. The fortress was destroyed. The Russians followed up on the victory and took the entire peninsula, slaughtering tens of thousands. The next target was the Ottoman-held fortress of Azov, which Peter the Great took in 1689 but lost in 1711. On June 19th, the fort was retaken through the use of 60 galleys and 15 artillery platforms in the waters surrounding the fortress. July 2nd saw another victory with the taking of another Ottoman fortress on the Black Sea, Ochakov. The defenders had run up a white flag in surrender, but the Russians killed all 13,000 of them in the fort. 
While the Russians were winning battle after battle, the Austrians tried their hand against the Ottomans, but they were much less successful, losing several major encounters. But a far more deadly enemy was to plague all sides of this war, the Black Plague. A major outbreak among the Austrian troops began in 1738. It quickly surged through the Austrian Empire, Ottoman Serbia, Wallachia, Moldavia, Ukraine, and Crimea. By 1740, the Russians had lost 30,000 men out of the 90,000 troops sent to fight the Turks from the plague. In battle, they only lost 2,000. This is a very common occurrence in fighting in the past. Usually, more men died from disease or infection than did in the fighting. After returning to fighting the Ottomans, the Austrians continued to lose, while the Russians continued to win. Now, you would think that the Austrians might want some help from the Russians to defeat their common enemy. But you'd be wrong. Empress Anne had informed Austrian King Charles VI that she wanted to capture the city of Constantinople, something the Austrians would not want to see. Moreover, it would give the Russians way too much power in the region. Because of this, the Treaty of Belgrade was signed on September 18, 1739, between the Ottoman Empire and Austria. This forced Anne to sign her own treaty on October 3rd, 1739, known as the Treaty of Nice. The terms of the treaties were not very beneficial to the Russians, as they had to give up all their territorial gains, except Azov. On top of that, they couldn't even keep a fleet of warships there. Furthermore, Austria was given the right to protect Christians within the Ottoman Empire, a right that Russia always believed that it held. As a result, Vienna and St. Petersburg would become enemies for the next 150 years. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time when we finish this two-part series, when we cover the remaining wars between the Russians and the Ottoman Empire. Well, I'm going to break a tradition that I've gone through. So what is this? The 243rd episode. And I have ended every single one with the same phrase. And I've heard from some of my listeners saying, you know, I even repeat it with you at the end. That's going to change. And I want to thank somebody for this change. Uh, It's one of my reviewers recently on Apple of the podcast. And he said, Mark, you know, when you say das vidanya is spasibo you're saying basically thank you very much. There's a better way to do that for your podcast, and today I'm going to end the podcast that way. So, until next time, das vidanya is spasibo za vinyamanya. What that means is goodbye and thank you for listening. And I really thank all of my loyal listeners for all these 12 years for listening. We are on the precipice of uh, Thanksgiving here in the United States, and I want to wish everybody happy Thanksgiving. And to everybody in the world, again, das vidanya y spasiba za